Please take out that Bible and turn in it to John chapter 9. We are finally beginning a new chapter. John chapter 9, page 895 in the Pew Bible. I want to try and do something a little bit different with this chapter. I know that I'm going to spend a lot of time in John chapter 10. So, I want to try to be a little bit shorter with John chapter 9. I want to try to do this chapter in just two weeks. Uh, this Sunday, today, we're going to look only at verses 1 through 7, but next Sunday is Easter Sunday. I hope that you know this, but Easter is a wonderful evangelistic opportunity. Many people are far more inclined to be willing to attend church on Easter or on Christmas than they would on any other Sunday. So I hope that you will try and take advantage of that. I hope that you will try and invite some friends and family this week to join you for church next Sunday for Easter Sunday. Bribe them with lunch if you have to do so. Uh, but John chapter 9 is, is one of those beautiful narratives in, in this whole book. It's well written, it's compelling, there's kind of some intrigue, there's wonderful conversations, and it's just a wonderful revelation of the person and the work of Christ. So next week, I want to take a big picture look at the whole story with a bit more of an evangelistic emphasis and ask the question, who really is the Jesus that is revealed in this story? So I encourage you, invite some people who need to hear about this Jesus and invite them to come and join us uh, next Sunday at 11. But this week, there is first an ever-present and ever-relevant issue that we need to wrestle with first. Uh, this week, we need to take a deeper and more difficult look at something that colors this whole story and the whole of life, maybe the whole of your story and the whole of your life. Here's the question raised by the beginning of our text, a question that we've all struggled with. You may be struggling with it right now. What about suffering? What about my suffering? Last week was revelation and response. John chapter 8 is all about the identity of Christ and also then the identity of true disciples of Christ. Remember we concluded with 858, the climax, the purpose of the whole long conversation. Truly, truly, I say to you before Abraham was, I am. 8.25, they had asked, who are you? 8.58, Jesus answered, here's who I am. I am. I am Yahweh. I am God himself come in the flesh. The core central claim of the Christian faith is that Christ is God become man. And so he considered Christ's gracious revelation of glory. And we'll consider that revelation and that identity more next week. I am but for many of us, though we would rarely dare vocalize this, for many of us, our response to this revelation is, well, so what? Right? Not so what in the dismissive sense that we don't care, but so what in the sense that we want but struggle to see what this means for us. How that applies to us, what that has to do with my day-to-day -day often difficult life. I am okay, but I am often struggling, suffering, sad, or lonely, or lost. What does the identity of Christ and the revelation of the glory of Christ say to that? What does all this have to do with all that? This has been a year or two or more of great loss for many of you. How does the glory of Christ relate to that? What does the glory of Christ relate to that? That's what we want to consider this morning. Because in this story that is all about sight, what I want us to see is that Christ moves from a revelation of his glory directly to a helping of the hurting. Christ goes straight from the claim to be the all-glorious God to serve and save an all-miserable man which is a further revelation and demonstration of the glory of Christ. And so here we see that glory specifically applied to very real and significant suffering. And it is in this that we begin to see the effect of His glory on our suffering. It is in this that we at least begin to get an answer for the question of our suffering. 
And in the spirit of question and answer, our outline is going to be a little bit, this morning's going to be a little bit different. Um, we're going to try a few different things. We'll see if they work. Uh, they may not work. Let's be clear. In one sermon, no matter how long that sermon may be, in one sermon, we, we're not going to, we can only barely begin to scratch the surface of the problem of suffering. We cannot solve, we cannot answer the problem of suffering in one sermon. But we can begin to look at some of the foundations that Scripture gives us. We can begin to look at some of the answers that this text gives us. So what I want to do is walk through this text and seek its answer to four questions, or questions that we've all wondered and asked. Number one, here's the question that the disciples are going to ask. Number one is, well, what is the relationship between sin and suffering? I'm suffering, well, what does that have to do with sin. Let's be very careful to answer that question correctly. But then number two, here's maybe the most important question. What is God doing in our suffering? That's going to be much of the answer to question one. What is God doing in our suffering? Then number three, here's our hope. We're going to consider, well, what is the outcome of our suffering? We may be in the middle of it. It may be really long. Well, is there an outcome? Does scripture tell us anything about that? What will it be? And then four, and finally, we'll seek to try and apply briefly. How should we then, in light of the answers to these first three, how should we respond in and to our suffering? Last week, we considered John Owen's claim that a sight of the glory of Christ is the universal remedy and cure for our souls. If that's true, then it also has to apply to our sufferings. My goal is for us to consider the glory of Christ now specifically in light of the reality of our suffering. And in Him and in His glory, hopefully begin to find rest for our souls. Pray for me. Are you suffering? Consider the glory of the gracious Christ. Let's read about Him. Let's look at Him right now. John chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. Pay attention. Remember, this is the most important part. This is the revelation of the glory of Christ in God's living and active word. This is what God wants to say to you today. As he, Jesus, passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And the disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed, and came back seeing. Let's stop there. Let's pause. Let's pray. Father, help us now as we come before your word. Pray that you would help both the preaching of your word and the hearing of your word. Father, we pray that your living and active word would be a means through which your spirit works in this time uh, to teach our minds to comfort our hearts, to show us the glory of Christ. And Father, I pray specifically for those who are experiencing suffering of all kinds of uh, various different degrees and, and sorts. Father, I pray that you would minister your grace through your word um, by your spirit um, in this time. Father, show us the all-glorious Christ and help us to begin to see and apply who he is and what he does for us, what he does specifically in this text, uh, to our day-to-day -day lives, uh, the good things and the bad things. Uh, Father, please help me uh, to be true and clear and helpful and correct. Father, we pray that we would glorify Christ and all that is done here. Uh, we ask uh, that you would edify your saints and that you would build your church. And Father, apart from you, we can do nothing. Uh, please help us now, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. So the first question we're seeking to answer is, well, what is the relationship between sin and suffering? For that's the very question that the disciples ask in verse 2. But first, look at verse 1 and see verse 1. We start off, as he, Jesus, passed by. And now, John's not too concerned about chronology sometimes in this gospel. It's hard to nail down definitively the timeline between chapter 8 and chapter 9. We cannot say for sure how soon this story is happening after the previous story, but 
it seems that John is linking the two pretty closely. So it's at least quite possible that Jesus is literally departing. Remember, he's had this long confrontation with the Jews. The climactic revelation of his glory. And their response is they pick up stones with which to kill him. Maybe it was as he was departing directly from them and their very evident spiritual blindness that Jesus goes straight to this man and his very evident physical blindness. And it's hard to say for sure, but John's at least tying the two stories together. Notice a couple of things there. Look at verse 1. Look at how it starts. Jesus saw the man born blind, and then notice how it ends. Verse 7, the man came back seeing. All right, so this is a story very much about sight. And we'll see this more in detail next week. We'll see this more in question 3. But here's the obvious connection to chapter 8. Jesus says here in our text in verse 5, I am the light of the world. Jesus has just said back in chapter 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world. Right, same thing. So the whole point of this book is the revelation of the identity of Jesus. And that identity has something to do with his being the light of the world. And he repeats that for us twice. Repetition. Right? At what point have I repeated myself too much about repetition? I don't know. But repetition reveals relevance. This is important. Pay attention to this. I am the light of the world. He has told us twice. Now he's going to show us. I have told you that I am the light of the world. Let me show you. I am the light of the world. Let me show you what that looks like. And don't forget that in John, Jesus isn't running around performing all these miracles all the time. Uh, John records for us only seven of these. And remember, he never calls them miracles. John always calls these signs. This is the sixth and the penultimate sign. Remember, the whole first half of the book is building towards the climactic sign of the raising of Lazarus from death to life. This is building towards that. Jesus is life. This is revealing that as well. Jesus is light. And in being light, he is also life. All of these signs are teaching us about that. But when we include the other three gospels, it's got to be of some significance that the restoring of sight to the blind is actually, it's Jesus's most frequent miracle. I think there is particular symbolic significance in this miracle, as we will see. And so this is a story about sight. See that Jesus sees this man. See the misery of this man's condition. There are few things more difficult than blindness. And not at all to minimize the difficulty of blindness today. Uh, but it was, it was even worse back then. Uh, the, the blind were entirely helpless, and they were entirely hopeless, entirely at the mercy of others. And so this whole story starts with the glorious Christ and this miserable man, the Savior and the sufferer. But, verse 2, in verse 2, we get a third character entered into the story, or a third group of characters, the disciples. They're back, remember, we, they've been entirely absent from chapters 7 and 8. They've probably been around, but they have been unmentioned since chapter 6. Welcome back, fellas. We've missed you guys. Well, maybe not, right? They haven't spoken for a while. Maybe they should have continued to stay silent. This man has a sight problem. The disciples have a speaking problem, which is really a thinking problem, which is really a theology problem. But here's the question. First words from the disciples since chapter 6. Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Right, so they're asking the question that we're asking. What is the relationship between sin and suffering? Remember, we've, we've looked a lot at sin throughout chapter 8. Verse 21, you will die in your sin. Verse 34, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Maybe that's on the disciples' minds. Maybe Jesus has been confronting sin. Now here he is confronting suffering, and the disciples are wondering about the connection between the two. But, man, listen, they're, they're not just asking here. They're also assuming. There's, there's a big assumption behind the specific question that they ask. Uh, one of the greatest 
songs of the late 90s uh, was by an English band named Radiohead. It was called Karma Police. Um, this is not a recommendation of the song or the band. I was unregenerate at the time, um, but I loved the song at the time. It's haunting. It's a really good song. But the chorus repeats throughout the whole song, the line, this is what you get when you mess with us. This is what you get when you mess with us. You do this, you get this. And that's the basic idea of karma. Right? Karma is about causation. Karma is kind of the idea of moral causation. The Sanskrit word karma means action. It's basically the idea of spiritual cause and effect. And this is a fundamental doctrine at the very core of Buddhism, which is then directly related to the doctrine of reincarnation. But for our purposes, what we need to see is that how now, this is not just an exclusively Buddhist doctrine, but how much of this basic idea has infected much of our thinking today. And the disciples, apparently. Because the disciples here are doing what many of us tend to do. They are assuming that there is a direct cause and effect relationship, a direct correspondence between sin and suffering, which really isn't all that different than the idea of karma. We would never put it in those terms, but how often do we basically assume good things happen to good people, bad things happen to bad people, heaven is for the good people where they get the good things, hell is for the bad people where they get their bad things. Or we often do this when something bad happens to us. We tend to wonder, well, what bad thing have I done to deserve this thing? We suffer and we look for some sin as the cause or reason for that suffering. The assumption behind that is the same as the disciples' assumption here. This man is suffering. That's obvious. That's evident. We can see the suffering. There must be some sort of sin that is the reason for that suffering. Ooh. What is it? Now, their assumption is wrong. We're getting there. But they're asking a question that we all ask. You either have recently suffered, or you are suffering right now, or you are about to suffer soon. How have you, and how do you tend to respond to that suffering? And what do you tend to think about cause and effect in that suffering? What do you tend to think about sin and relationship to that suffering? What do you implicitly assume about God in the midst of your suffering? There's few questions more important than the question of the relationship between sin and suffering. All right, so how do you tend to answer that question? Well, let's turn to our second question. We haven't yet answered the first question. Let's, the, the answer will be found in the answers to the second and third. Let's look at our second question as we seek to continue to unpack this. Our second question is, because this is, you can't answer the first one without this one. Well, what is God doing in our suffering? First, we've just noticed that there is a hidden assumption behind the disciples' question. Don't miss that there's a hidden assumption behind our second question as well. And that hidden assumption is that God is doing something in our suffering. That's a very important place to start right there. That's the beginning of an answer. But the disciples have asked a question. Let's consider Christ's answer. Look at verse 3. Jesus answered. First off, is this how you would answer this question? <laughs> Jesus answered. It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that, Hina, purpose clause, that, here's why, that the works of God might be displayed in him. What do you think of that answer? Christ's answers are always the correct answers. They are always the answers that we need. That doesn't necessarily mean it's always the answers we want or that it's always an easy answer. Right? Remember, we've just been seeing that Christ has hard words for us. So let, let's, we're going to unpack and consider these words and this answer, and I want to demonstrate that these are not actually hard words at all, but wonderfully good and helpful words. The disciples say, who sinned? Jesus says, it was not that this man or his parents sinned. So Jesus just dismisses and does away with their false assumption just, just outright. But I want to dig into this Further, because Jesus' teaching here is, is so profound. Right? Suffering is a reality. One of the beauties of Scripture is that it never shies away from suffering. It never minimizes suffering. It instead takes the reality of suffering seriously 
and then seeks to equip us to respond to that suffering that will and does come. So what I want to do is I got a little cute here. This might not be helpful. We'll see. So pray that this is helpful. Uh, I've come up with six statements that are hopefully a faithful summary of the scripture's teaching on the relationship between sin and suffering. Six sin and suffering statements, six general propositions. Now, again, we're not going to solve the suffering problem right now, but hopefully we can lay some groundwork and start to get some answers here that we can then start to talk about and maybe use as we experience suffering in our lives. So we can't spend long in each one of these. Jot them down, consider them, come back and ask me about them. And, and these can start to help us answer the suffering question. So I want to run through six sin and suffering propositions. Write these down and let's chew on these. Number one, number one, all suffering is a result of sin. <laughs> number one. All suffering is a result of sin. Wait a second, right? Isn't that the exact opposite of what Jesus has just said? Well, hold on. That will be number two. But first, we have to understand what Jesus is not saying. Let's be clear. Jesus is not saying that this man or his parents were sinless. We know that's not the case. We know that none is righteous. We know that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Even the suffering man, even his parents. This is the very reason that Christ has come. Sin is the very reason that Christ has come. He is, 129, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So the first thing that we have to establish in any discussion of suffering and sin is that all suffering is ultimately a result of sin. Were there no sin, there would be no suffering. Before Genesis 3, before sin, there was no suffering. After Revelation 20, after the dealing with of sin, there will be no suffering. Revelation 21, 4. Here's your hope. Hold on to this hope in the midst of your suffering. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more. And that's because... Christ will have uh, fully and finally dealt and done away and put away all sin. Sin is gone. Suffering is gone. And so we have to start with the biblical fact that all suffering only exists because of sin. Romans 5.12 Sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. Through sin comes death and with death comes all other associated suffering. And so as we are striving to better understand sin and consider the great weight and gravity of sin, we have to understand that sin causes suffering. Were there no sin, there would be no suffering. You simply cannot understand this world. You cannot understand reality without understanding suffering and its ultimate source in sin. And you cannot help this world or serve this world, or some solve some of the problems of the world without understanding suffering and its source in sin. All suffering is a result of sin. Sin as the rejection of the God of goodness and life logically and naturally results in suffering and death. And so, one of the first things that we should all of us do when confronted with suffering, either our own suffering or the suffering of others, is that we should lament and hate sin. We should loathe that which is the source of all suffering. Without making the mistake of the disciples, suffering is a wonderful opportunity for us to consider the horror of sin, to recognize that horror within us, to recognize that the seeds of all of the worst sins out there are within me, uh, to recognize that we deserve nothing but death and hell, and to cry out to the God who is our only hope in a sin-cursed, suffering-suffused world. So yes, one, all suffering is a result of sin. But yeah, we've got to be careful with that, because that's not the whole truth. That's only proposition one. Again, maybe it would be helpful to uh, append and slip in an important word there. All suffering is ultimately a result of sin. Right? Maybe that clarifies a little bit more. All suffering is ultimately a result of sin. Because, balance that number one with proposition number two, straight from verse three. This is what Jesus is saying. Number two, not all personal suffering is a result of a particular sin. 
Number two, not all personal suffering is a result of a particular sin. That's what Jesus is saying here. This is Christ's correction of their mistaken assumption. There is no absolute one-to-one, do this, get that correlation between personal sin and personal suffering. And how do we know that this is true? What's the clearest proof of this proposition? First off, the clearest proof of this proposition is Christ himself and the cross. The only sinless man to ever walk this earth is also the one known as the suffering servant. No sin infinitely more suffering than anyone has or ever will experience. Then we have the book of Job. The, that whole long book is there in large part to demonstrate the falsehood of this karmic connection between sin and suffering. The first two chapters of Job demonstrate very clearly the great righteousness of Job. And then the, the whole next dozens of chapters uh, are all about the great suffering of Job. Matthew 5.10, the Beatitudes, Jesus said, Blessed are those who are persecuted. That's suffering. Why are they suffering? For righteousness' sake. In the same vein, 1 Peter 3.14, If you suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. And all I'm establishing right now with those two verses is that there's no definitive link between sin and suffering. There is a suffering for righteousness' sake, which proves that there is such a thing as suffering that has nothing to do with personal sin. Sometimes we just suffer. Proposition number one, because we find ourselves in a sin-cursed, suffering-suffused world. Sometimes the righteous do suffer. And in fact, as we're about to see, in many ways, the righteous suffer more than the wicked. Psalm 34, 19, many are the afflictions of the righteous. One loose translation says, the Lord's people may suffer a lot. 2 Timothy 3, 12, all who desire, do you desire to live a godly life? All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted at suffering. John 16, 33. In the world, you are in the world. Jesus says, in the world, you will have tribulation, trouble, suffering. And all that means for us for now is that when you experience suffering, you cannot leap to the conclusion that you are being punished for some sin. Stop assuming that you had a bad day because you missed your Bible reading in the morning. That's not how it works. Stop assuming that since something went poorly, it's because you didn't pray about it enough or it's because you're outside of God's will. That's not a thing, by the way. You cannot be outside of the God who is sovereign over all things. You cannot be outside of His will. You can be outside of His revealed will. You can disobey His word, of course, but you cannot be outside of God's will. Right? There, there, there is no absolute one-to-one, do this, get that, Correlation between personal sin and personal suffering. Scripture makes that clear. Christ, Job, the teachings of the apostles. And you know what else makes that clear? You make that clear. Your life makes that clear. My life makes that clear. And our personal experience. Because I know you, and you know me, and we know that we are far worse sinners than we let on. We're God sitting up there as kind of like the cosmic cop, um, the police, like one sin, boom, one suffering. Another sin, boom, here's another uh, suffering. Uh, we would all be doomed. This room would be empty. We would all be dead. Praise God that he does not deal with us according to our sins. Praise God that as a father shows compassion to his children, So the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. The fact that we are here sitting in this room, breathing and alive is proof enough that all personal suffering is not a result of a particular sin, for we would all be suffering far more than we are. Right, So we've got to be very careful. Jesus is making it very clear um, that not all particular suffering is a result of personal sin. But, next proposition... This is also true. Number three, some personal suffering is a result of a particular sin. 
Right? Some personal suffering is a result of a particular sin. I'd rather not have to tell you that. I'd rather just avoid that one. But it's an equally true biblical statement. Some suffering is a result of personal sin. Right? Uh, the problem with the idea of a karmic connection between sin and suffering is not that there is some cause and effect relationship between the two. No, there is. The problem is that it generalizes and that it absolutizes, it, it mechanizes the whole thing. The problem is that it ignores God and providence and grace. But some suffering very much is a result of sin. And we know this. Right? Scripture affirms this. David sins greatly with Bathsheba and Uriah. And then he suffers greatly as a result of his sin. And others suffer greatly as a result of his sin. We've got to get out. We've got to get out of this idea that like, oh, you know, this doesn't affect anybody else. Nobody knows about this sin. It's not hurting anyone else. No, 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 no. Sin always hurts and harms and it always hurts and harms others. Uh, sin causes great suffering. Uh, David causes great suffering through his sin. Ananias and Sapphira sin greatly and lying to God and they are struck down dead. Sin, suffering. We avoid this one in our consideration of the Lord's Supper. Right? We want it to be as easy and open as possible. But Paul says very clearly, many are weak and ill and some have died suffering because they are partaking of the supper in an unworthy manner. Sin. Sin does cause suffering. Scripture is clear. And again, our experience is clear. Right? Sometimes you drive the speed limit, you obey the laws, someone still runs into you, and you get hurt, and you suffer, though you did not sin. But if you go out and drink, and then you decide to drive, and you run into and hurt someone, and you lose your license, and you pay a huge fine, and you go into jail, and you deal with the weight and burden of hurting or killing someone, you are suffering specifically because of your sin. We need to be aware of this. Our culture is increasingly trying to absolve everyone of all responsibility for anything. Right? You struggle with drinking, oh, it's a disease. No, it's not. <laughs> it's, it's just not. Right? We are responsible for our sin, even if we have proclivities towards that sin, even if there are biological things that dispose us more to something than other people, we are always responsible for our sin, and sin causes suffering. So just because all particular uh, suffering is not a result of personal sin does not mean that no particular suffering is a result of personal sin. Well, the obvious question then is, well, how do you discern between Proposition 2 and 3? How do you discern if you are suffering not because of sin or you are suffering because of sin? That's a good question. Very carefully and cautiously is the answer. Uh, consider first the words of Calvin. Calvin says, if my brother meets with adversity, I instantly acknowledge the judgment of God. <laughs> That's so funny. But if God chastises me with a heavier stroke, I wink. I, I, I dismiss, I ignore, I minimize my sins. If we wish to be candid judges in this matter, let us learn to be quick in discerning our own evils rather than those of others. So first word is be quick to judge yourself. Be very slow to judge others. You almost never uh, should tell someone else that they are suffering because of some uh, sin. Unless you are very close to that person and you have built up all kinds of um, personal relationship with them and you love them and they know that you love them and you have very strong and clear evidence. Oh, hey, by the way, you got drunk and went driving and now you're, you're hurt and harmed. There's a clear connection here. You just be very careful about pronouncing this upon others. Um, but... How do you judge yourself? It's a hard, it's a hard question. Uh, consider the criteria we use for church discipline. Right? Church discipline, we talk about, we're all struggling sinners. We're not running around as the sin police. But in cases of outward, serious, unrepentant sin, something must be done. So maybe start there. Is there outward? Is there serious and here's the big one. Is there unrepentant, persistent sin in your life? If there is, and you know that there is, and you refuse to stop, well, then you should at least consider the possibility that there is suffering that is a result of sin. God disciplines those whom he loves. We know that that's 
True. That's not a satisfactory answer, but it's, it's at least a start. I do. I, I want to caution, be very careful about leaping to that conclusion. But I don't want to throw it entirely out and say, no, 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 no one ever suffers because of their sin. No, because we do. Be very careful in discerning between the two. And so, with those first three propositions, we have part of an answer to our first question. That's the relationship between sin and suffering. All suffering ultimately results from sin. Some particular suffering does result from particular sin, but be careful because that is not always the case. Much does not. But still, still not a particularly satisfactory answer. We are still suffering. Why are we suffering? Well, the hope is hidden in question too. Your hope is that God is doing something. And he is. Always. Look back again at verse 3. Here's Christ's answer to the problem of suffering. The man is suffering not because of sin, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. That's the answer. It's not an easy answer, but it's a good one. It's the answer we need. So here's your fourth proposition. Here's your fourth statement. We know this. I know you know this. All suffering is for the glory of God. All suffering is for the glory of God. Last week, 854, the Father glorifies me. 858, before Abraham was, I am. That is a revelation of the glory of God in Christ. John 1, 14, we have seen his glory. Remember, we talked about this on Thursday a little bit. The glory of God is the, it's the demonstrating. It's, it's the showing and shining forth of the greatness of who he is. It is the display of the absolute beauty of all his perfections. The glory of God is kind of like the sum total of all his infinite excellence and beauty and praiseworthy than put on display. He is God and there is no other. We just looked at it Thursday. God as God does all that he does for the glory of God. The chief end of man is to glorify God and that is because the chief end of God is to glorify God. Ephesians 1.11 He works all things according to the counsel of his will to the praise of his God does all things for his glory, and that is good because God is good, perfectly, indescribably good. As the creator and sustainer of all, as the one who is life itself, as the one uh, whom apart from we have no good thing. Is that true or not? Apart from him, we have no good thing. If that's true, then it is right and good for this God to do all things for his glory. To do all things then for the purpose of revealing himself in all his greatness and in all his goodness to show himself to us and to draw us to him. Because it is only in him and with him that we find goodness. And that all things, even though it's hard, all of those things that he's doing for his glory, even though it's hard, those all things must include our suffering. Remember John 17, 3, knowing God is eternal life. Being a Christian is knowing God. The sum total of the Christian life is knowing God. The whole point of life, you exist to know the God who is life. Remember, that's why God has given us this book, 2031. These things are written. The Gospel of John is a revelation of Jesus who is the revelation of the glory of God. And the whole point is that we may see and believe and know Him and have life. And if all of that is true, if life literally is knowing God, then anything and everything that God can and does do to make Himself known to us is necessarily good. That, that is the ultimate answer to the suffering problem. All suffering. The glory of God. Yeah, it's not easy. It's not a quick fix. You're not going to leave. You're like, all right, it's for the glory of God. I got this. No problem. Suffering's easy now. And that's, that's not what we're saying. But we're seeking to begin to consider our sufferings in light of what God is doing in them. And increasingly then, bringing to bear the glory of God on our experience of suffering. But still, more needs to be said. I don't want to just tell you that it's all for the glory of God. I want to, by the grace of God, show you. I want you to see the goodness 
of even suffering being all for the glory of God. So those are the first four sin and suffering propositions. Let's move to question three and let's try to see the goodness of this as we look at these last two statements. Number three is our third question is what is the outcome of our suffering? What is the outcome of our suffering? All right, what's God doing? Oh, he's glorifying his name. Wait, what about us? What does that do for us? How does that turn out for us? Go back to the story. Look at verse 5. Jesus again tells us who he is. He reveals his glory again. I am the light of the world. Light is life. Jesus is life. Now he shows us. Look at verse 6. We might come back to this next week. There's all kinds of wild speculation about what Jesus is doing there. Yeah, you know, why the spitting? Why the dirt? Why the mud? Why the mud all over the face? It's kind of weird, right? Jesus just told a crippled man in chapter 5 to get up and walk, and the man did. So we know Jesus doesn't need to do this. There's nothing medicinal. There's nothing magical. It's just mud. Uh, There's something symbolic about this. Maybe that'll be next week. But the fact that John doesn't tell us means that we need to be careful in our speculation. But at a minimum, the answer could be more simple than, than much of the speculation. In slathering mud all over this man's eyes, well, Jesus is first drawing attention to the man's problem, his need, right? The problem's here. Jesus is doing something here. And in a sense, Jesus is intensifying the problem. If you have mud on your eyes, you can't see, right? Mud blinds. So he was blind, and now he's doubly blind. But I think the simplest answer, maybe to what Jesus is doing with all this, is that in covering this man's face with mud, well, well, now the man has to go and wash it off, right? Can you imagine the scene that this would have created? Remember, Jesus has just said the whole point of this is that the works of God might be displayed, the glory of God. Well, now here is a known blind man wandering and stumbling blindly through the streets with mud all over his face, trying to get to a pool. What a scene that would have made. What a display of the work that Christ was about to perform. Jesus sees this man who cannot see. He does this strange man to this thing, to this man who cannot see, to draw attention to him that many might see the man who cannot see. And then Jesus sends the man who cannot see, stumbling blindly to the pool. And look at the end of verse 7. So he went and washed, and he came back seeing. John's just like the master of understatement. Come on, John. This is amazing. But as we're going to see next time, everyone is seeing the blind man now seeing. How are they responding to the blind man now seeing? That's what we're going to look at next week, so you have to come back. But for now, imagine this scene again. What? understatement. Uh, This man has never seen. I'm sure Jeremy is a wonderful eye doctor. Jeremy cannot do this. Jeremy cannot solve your blindness problem. Susan cannot solve our blindness problem. He had never seen anything. His eyes did not work. In a sense, this might be a hint to what Jesus is doing in the mud. There's nothing that Jesus is restoring because he never had it. This isn't a restoration miracle. This might be a creation miracle. Jesus is creating sight. He's creating something that has never been there before. But just imagine this man covered in mud, wandering around, wondering what's going on. Water wiping light, sight, seeing eyes, weeping eyes, I am sure, joyful eyes. The display of the all-glorious God has resulted in the good of this all miserable man and that's your fifth sin and suffering proposition i just said that if god is god in life and anything and everything he can do to make himself known to us is necessarily good which necessarily then means it is also for our good statement five all suffering works for good for the child of god all suffering works for good for the child of god That's a fact. That's a guarantee. That is a blood-bought promise of God. And I know that you know this. I know I'm not telling you anything that you have not heard and that you don't know. Um, But I know that I think that I know this, and I know how quick I am to forget this when the suffering comes. This is why we have the Word. 
This is why we have stories like this. This is why we gather every week to remind ourselves of what we've forgotten this previous week. This man has been blind for decades. He has been suffering in a way that is hard for most of us to begin to comprehend. And this story is here for a reason. Christ's revelation of His glory followed up directly by the demonstration of His goodness in this healing is here for a reason. And it's here for us. This is here to show you to prove to you that whatever that thing is that you are suffering, it will work for your good. He suffers, and then he sees. We mentioned Job a moment ago. Job proves that all, not all suffering is a result of sin, but Job still just suffers chapter after chapter after chapter. We're going through it in Bible study. You guys are like, he's suffering again, right? It's so, it's, it's so long. It's so much suffering. But how does the story end? Blessing. Good. God restores Job's fortunes doubly, blessing him with twice what he had before all the suffering. Hold on. Are you telling me? Are you promising me that God is going to heal me? Are you promising me that whatever suffering and whatever loss I have experienced is going to be redeemed and restored and redoubled in blessing? Yes. (laughs) That's exactly what I'm telling you. Wait a second. Isn't that just the, the prosperity gospel that you so often mock? Like, don't listen to the guys if they're on TV because they're false teachers, prosperity gospel. Uh, they, they're telling me that God wants me to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. Is that what you're saying? No. That's not at all what I'm saying. For here's the real problem with the prosperity gospel. Its problem is not that it overpromises, but that it underpromises. It doesn't promise too much. It promises too little in focusing on the wrong things. Remember that the miracles in John are always signs. They themselves are not the point. They always point beyond themselves. The physical healing of the man born blind is not the point, as wonderful as it is. We're going to see the point next week in verse 38 as Christ pursues this man and works in this man's life and we get to verse 38 as he again encounters the Christ of all glory and grace and goodness and then he cries out, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. And that is infinitely and eternally better than verse 7. And that man in believing, finding life, in believing, he finally found true healing, spiritual healing. He found his new heart and new soul and new life by grace through faith in Christ. And so that wonderful physical healing and health that he would enjoy for the next few years nothing compared to the wonderful spiritual healing and health that he would enjoy for the whole of eternity. We see Jesus healed the man and we're like, oh, that's amazing. He gave him sight. No. He gave him a new heart and a new mind, and he indwelt him with his very spirit, and he made him one with Christ, and gave him eternity. That's the miracle. And so, yes, you will be healed. You will be blessed, and your suffering will be redeemed. No, that's not promised to us in this life. Never. Let's be clear. If I wasn't clear, that's not promised us in this life. But something so much better is promised. Again, we just just struggle to see it. We all just still so struggle to actually see and believe in the superiority of the spiritual to the physical and the eternal to the temporal. And God knows this. He knows us. Right? He knows how much we struggle with suffering. And so He is patient with us. He's far more patient with us than we are with ourselves. He's far more patient with us than we are with each other. And he's kind to us in our suffering. And part of that kindness is demonstrated right here in his giving us stories like this one to show us our hope. That picture to us, the promise that he makes to us in Christ. This suffering, whatever it is, no matter how big it is, no matter how long it is, no matter how unbearable it seems, it will work for your ultimate and eternal good. For that not to be true, Christ has to be a liar. For that not to be true, Christ has to have failed. And that is impossible. You desperately need to know the promises of God. You should be rehearsing Romans 8.28 to yourself constantly. We can't let that verse become a cliche. We desperately need that verse. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together 
for good. You need to know those promises and then pray and fight to believe and trust those promises. You desperately need to know not just the promises of God, but the providence of God. Suffering is hard. Meaningless, purposeless suffering is impossible. It's impossible. For the Christian, there is no such thing as meaningless and purposeless suffering. The God of perfect providence does nothing without plan or purpose. Nothing that does not result in ultimate good. That means that you will experience no pain that does not have plan or purpose. No pain that will not result in good and glory. Rest in the providence of the sovereign and good God in the midst of suffering. And know this, sin and suffering proposition number six. Know this, as we end, all suffering ends. For the child of God. All suffering ends for the child of God. This man's suffering ends. Your suffering will end. It already has an expiration date. If all suffering works for good, ultimate good, glory and eternity and perfect blessed fellowship with God, then that necessarily means that all suffering eventually ends for the child of God. And what an end it will be. Just like this man, the end will ultimately be sight. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. That is what awaits the end of your suffering. That is the blessing and the reward that awaits at the end of your suffering. A sight of the glorious God of all blessedness and life in the midst of your suffering and sometimes it's so long you've got to know that there's an end and you've got to know that it's an unimaginably good end and thus unimaginably worth whatever it is the good God sends us on our way there do you believe this so he's going to ask us in John 11 do you believe him All of these six truths apply. I think they're correct. I think they're biblical. All of them apply no matter how big, no matter how bad the suffering. And it is a sight of the guaranteed outcome of your suffering that can transform your experience within that suffering. Whatever it is, know that God sees your suffering. Know that God uses your suffering. Know that God is present in your suffering. Know that God ends your suffering. And know that God reverses and restores and redeems and rewards your suffering. Suffering is an ever-present difficult reality, but sight is coming because the Savior has already come, and He's showing us here what He has come to do. Question four. I'll just point out two things here, and I'll be done. Thank you for suffering through this sermon. How should we respond in and to our suffering? There's a ton of answers. This should get a whole other sermon. I just want to draw two things specifically from the text that I think are there and could be helpful. First, look at verse 3. How do you respond to your suffering? First, display the works of God. And then second, verse 4. Look at verse 4. Do the works of God. How do we respond to our suffering? Display the works of God. Do the works of God. How do we display the works of God in our suffering? Why, this man was healed, right? An obvious demonstration and display of God's God's glorious work. Well, what about when we're not healed? How do we display his works and his glory in the midst of of that suffering? Well, I think it's in large part, it's by suffering well. Suffering well displays the work of God. How is that? Well, again, again, this is not easy. I don't know how to do this very well. Uh, Suffering well, suffering patiently, contentedly, joyfully, demonstrates and displays that we find God and his glory superior to, to all other things. Suffering well demonstrates and displays that we trust God completely even when everything around us is falling apart. And and this must be possible. This is the only way that we can find, that we would be able to find such crazy statements in scripture like 2 Corinthians 6.10. Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. That doesn't make any sense to the world. That can't make any sense to the world. That can only make sense if there is a spiritual reality and if God is doing something in our physical suffering that is preparing us for eternity and heaven and that spiritual reality. We can be sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Or crazy statements like James 1, 2, right? This is a command. This is God's law. Count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds or 
sufferings. What? (laughs) Or what we just read in Romans chapter 5. Let me commend you in your suffering, Romans chapter 5. To suffer well, you really need, there's a couple of things you really need. You need the whole of God's word, of course. Um, And you need brothers and sisters in Christ around you to help you suffer well. But specifically related to the word, to suffer well, you need what God has given you in the Psalms. Because uh, there, we, there we see an inspired demonstration of what it's like to, to suffer in response to hardship. David just crying out and calling out, complaining not about the Lord, but complaining to the Lord. Right? What's going on here? I'm struggling. I'm suffering. Help me. You need the Psalms. You need what God has given you in Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 is one of your most wonderful resources in the midst of suffering. And you need what God has given you in Romans chapter 5. We just read this. Romans 5, 2. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Okay, easy. That sounds great. Of course we do. But verse 3. Not only that, but we rejoice also in our sufferings. What? How? We rejoice in our sufferings. Here's the key word. Catch the participle. Knowing. We rejoice also in our sufferings. Knowing. Knowing transforms suffering. Knowing that... Suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Because, oh, I love this is such a beautiful picture, God's love has been poured into our hearts. Derek's, Derek's favorite verse. That's, this is the secret. It's the answer to our second question. It's knowing that God is doing something. It's statement five. It's knowing that all suffering works for for the good of the child of God. That's how we can begin to start and rejoice in our sufferings because we know its end purpose and we know that it ends. And its end purpose is endurance and character and hope. And we are sustained to the end by God's love that is better than life as it is poured into our heart through the Holy Spirit whom he has given to us. We have a hard but blessed opportunity to display the work of God in our suffering. So we display the work of God in our suffering and we do the work of God in our suffering. How? How do we do that? Well, notice again what Christ does in our passage. He focuses on the suffering of another. He is the suffering servant. He is the man of sorrows. He is about to suffer infinitely for the sins of his people. That's, that's the gospel. That's the whole point of this. This is the good news. That this glorious Christ has come to take our place, take on flesh, and suffer and die for our sins. That's the real good that he has come to do. All the relative good that he does in his short time on earth is to point us to that. And that's our hope. That's what transforms our suffering. But notice how the suffering one sees this man in his suffering and then moves towards this man in his suffering and then seeks to help this man in his suffering. The suffering one focuses and sees the suffering of another. One of the best things that you can do in your suffering is see and seek to be a blessing to someone else in their suffering. And in so doing, you are imitating Christ right here. In so doing, you are doing the works of God. And in so doing, you will also amazingly find great comfort and relief for yourself and your own suffering. But we know this is true, though we still struggle with it. It's amazing how much I can make my relatively minor sufferings look huge when I turn inward and I rehearse them and I dwell on them and meditate on them and build them up in my head and somehow convince myself that no one has suffered like I have suffered as I focus on that suffering. Right? It's so silly what we're able to do in our own heads. But when, by the grace of God, uh, I'm able, uh, this needs to happen more than it does, when I'm able to then turn outwards and focus on the suffering of others and see their very real suffering, all of a sudden, this suffering feels different. It feels less. It feels little. Not that it's not significant, but now my focus is is here, where it's meant to be. Remember, sin is self-focus. Grace turns us outward to the Lord and then outward uh, to his people. And so you do the works of God by in the midst of your suffering, seeking to be a blessing to others who are in the midst of suffering as well. And I've already gone long. Are you suffering? Yes, in some way or another you are. Life is suffering. The princess bride, life is pain. Anyone who tells you otherwise 
is trying to sell you something. Life is suffering, and Scripture knows that, and it tells us that. So consider now that suffering in light of the glorious and gracious and good Christ who has come to save sinners from eternal suffering, who has come to save us from that eternal suffering that we deserved for our sin, and then who promises to use our temporary suffering for our ultimate good, which is eternal pleasure and joy and fellowship and relationship with Him and with His people. Suffering is never easy. But listen, suffering is impossible apart from the suffering Savior. Don't try and suffer apart from Him and His glorious gospel of grace. He sees you in your suffering. He's with you in your suffering. He uses your suffering. He will end your suffering. And He will reverse, restore, redeem, and reward your suffering. Trust Him. A sight by the, work, by the gracious work of the Spirit of God, a sight of the glory of Christ can transform the saints' experience of suffering. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, thank you for your grace. Father, thank you that you are not like us. We thank you that your ways are not our ways. Your thoughts are not our thoughts. And in the context, Father, you are revealing to us that you are far more compassionate and kind than we are. We thank you that you are a gracious Heavenly Father who has great care and concern for his children. Father, we thank you that you are an all-powerful, gracious, heavenly Father. And so you have the ability, Father, to work all the things in our lives for our ultimate good. Father, many of us are struggling. Many of us are suffering. We ask that you would help us. Father, we, we know that no... Me a reminder that all things work for good as is going to solve our experience of suffering. But Father, we pray that you would take these truths and impress them on our hearts. Father, increasingly make us doers of your word and not hearers only. Father, help me as I seek to more and more live out the truths that I have the great privilege of proclaiming here. I want to more and more practice what I preach. So Father, help us to believe that you are good. Help us to believe that you are sovereign. Help us to believe that you are in truly in control and that you love us so much that you ordain hard things for our lives to bring about eternally good and glorious things for our eternal lives. Father, I pray simply that you would encourage us and that you would help us to more and more love you and trust you in the midst of our suffering. And I ask and I pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.